0: We knew we were going to raise money and then everyone tells you if, if you're in a kind of venture-backed kind of space it's like do both processes at the same time because then you could play them off each other theoretically right and so to make a long story short we we went out to these 12 people we we're like hey we got some interest um you know do you want to chat and that kind of kicked things off and then we also started putting together like a raise um we were primarily going after the um the, um, the the sale conversation because we kind of had this bird in the hand. But it was one of those situations too. We were sitting there and we were like, okay, like, yeah, we talked to this person out of the 12, but God, their number is going to be a lot higher for us to go work there than this number, right? So we weren't thinking about it as like, we're going to hear the keys, have a good day. Like we still wanted to keep going, which also limited the space that we went to, rightly or wrongly. Like we weren't going to private equity firms. We weren't going to like you know, traditional banking, like exits, those types of things. We were strictly looking at strategics.
1: Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of built to sell radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer, Colin Morgan. And today on the show, John is joined by Patrick Campbell, who bootstrapped his SaaS company ProfitWell, to a $200 million exit. But before we get there. In the episode, Patrick hints at a documentary that he and the acquiring company Paddle put together about the sale. And there's a really great part where Patrick and Paddle's founder talk about how the relationship started and eventually evolved into an acquisition. And I've actually found this for you and linked it in the show notes section, which can be found over at BuiltToSell.com. Okay, so now let me tell you about today's guest, Patrick Campbell, who started ProfitWell, which helps SaaS companies increase revenue and reduce churn by managing their data in one place. Now, the first half of this episode, the first 30 minutes or so to be more specific, Patrick talks about two silent partners he brought on at the beginning and kind of the mistakes he made structuring the company, how he fixed it, and how you can avoid making the same error yourself. So if you have founders or equity partners, this could be extremely valuable. Now in the second half of this conversation, uh, Patrick talks about his decision to sell and more specifically, I want you to look out for the part where he shares with John why he decided to sell over raising capital for his company, ProfitWell, which ultimately resulted in a $200 million exit. Here to share with John the full story is Patrick Campbell. Enjoy.
2: Patrick Campbell, <laughs> welcome to Build Cell Radio.
0: What's up man, how are you?
2: Good to see you. I'm great, I'm great, I'm great. Well, let's get into it. I wanna hear the profit Well origin story because you guys started out in a different business than you ended up being in. So tell me where you started
0: yeah so it it's kind of funny because I think it we had everything we had at the beginning at the end uh, but it, it just looked a little different. So long and short of it, um, my background's in econometrics and math so just just that kind of person uh, for better and for worse, I'll say and then uh, ended up um, working for big entities. I worked for the Intel community, then I worked at Google, then um, I worked at a small startup and that's where I had worked on pricing for the first time so like helping that company figure out its pricing. And I wasn't enamored with the culture, um, which was kind of a theme you know, for those for two, two jobs as well. And so it was very, hey, I, like if I'm gonna start one thing, um, I might as well do it now, cause I don't have a mortgage, you don't have kids, those types of things. And so I was like, there's something in this pricing. So jumped out, Started my own thing, um, you know, like a lot of folks listening, working too many hours, um, but those are the hours that were needed, you know, to kind of get things moving. And ended up um, coming up with this like piece of pricing software that you could send a survey to your potential customers or your actual customers or both. And it would calculate the numbers and tell you, like, okay, this is what you should charge, like your willingness to pay of your customer. Um, and to make that section as short as possible um realized really quickly that people loved the end the data but they were very they didn't want to do the work to get the data and they didn't want to do the work um to interpret the data so they came to us actually and this is you know following your customer and we're basically like hey we'll pay you to do the work and we're like okay great and we're like we'll pay you to talk to us and tell us what to do based on the data and we're like oh no you know, VCs don't like services, right? And then they were basically like, "We'll pay you a lot of money," and we we're like, "Okay, right?" So um, that was kind of the beginning. And what we morphed into, to not go too deep into this, is um, a software company that you know had a couple of different products focused on um, basically giving subscription companies. So think of any subscription company you have from a coffee subscription that you might buy to uh, you know a piece of software you use um, that tells you on a subscription, helping those companies um, automate their pricing and automate the reduction in their cancellations. So when you go to cancel, getting in front of you and giving you an offer, depending on some data, or if your credit card fails, helping, helping them figure it out. And um, we did that through a bunch of different things, but, you know, we had a free product that gave analytics away for free that 30,000 companies used. And yeah, to make a long story short, it it turned into this like multi-product software company, all focused on helping subscription uh, companies. And so, um, yeah, that's the, that's the rambliest, loosest way I can describe everything. So I just, I didn't want to go too deep in software and SaaS and all this kind of stuff. So hopefully that's helpful.
2: Yeah, no, for sure. But very helpful and, and very succinct. Tell me about the founders. So in the beginning, it was you, the econometrics background and this idea of getting into pricing. But eventually, you, you brought a couple of key people on as co-founders and, and, and employees, Peter and, and, and Facundo. Tell yeah, me Facundo. about what precipitated their arrival.
0: Yeah, totally. So I had, I had this, um, I had these like part-time co-founders actually at first, um, we got introduced in the Boston scene and I was in the Boston kind of tech scene. And, um, you know, it, it's kind of, the reason I always bring it up is, is one, it was, it was definitely a painful situation because it was just, everyone was a first-time founder. So all the expectations were out of whack. And I bring it up because a lot of people listening have probably gone through this or, um, you did go through it and you kind of solved it, but it's going to rear its ugly head when you try to sell. And we'll talk, we can talk about that in a bit, but long story short, I had these part-time co-founders. They're great. Everything's good now, but it was like, you know, they were going to come full-time then they weren't, then the equity was kind of set up. So they were going to be full-time. So that was kind of a mess. And so it was just me working, you know, 18 hours a day. And then these guys, you know, you know, unfortunately causing like, you know, cause their priorities were different. Uh, Like why, why don't you have an ops person figuring out taxes? I'm like, well, cause we don't have any money. you know what I mean? Like that type of thing. So, and it's, you know, it's all good now, but it was, it was tough and, you know, made, I made mistakes throughout that and they made mistakes throughout that, but um, brought on, worked for about nine months. And sold, I think the first six months. So it was like June 15th, 2012 to the end of the year. Sold, I think it was like $110,000 to $115,000 worth of product, basically. Um, And it's good, high margin product. Our margins were like 65, 70%. Actually, Really, it was a hundred percent because, like, it was I wasn't paying myself. But uh, brought on Peter at that point to basically take over sales. This guy named Peter Zotto, um, who was with me throughout the entire thing, and then probably about a year and a half in, brought on Facundo to lead product. Um, and what really precipitated bringing them on is, I think we i i I had this vision and some of it was just naive but that's the joy of being a first-time founder of like i want to create this giant thing right like i you know it wasn't like i was like watching the social network and being like i want to be zuckerberg it wasn't like that (laughs) but it was like i want to go for it right like if i'm going to take this risk i come from a very blue-collar family who thought i was crazy you know for doing this but if i'm going to take this risk i'm going to swing for the fences right and swinging for the fences means like you got to bring on more people, and and I didn't know anything about business. I never wanted to be in business. I never studied business. I just ended up in business, and so there was a lot of naivete around. Oh, maybe I should just build the services business and cash flow. Like I didn't even know like people did that, right? And so that's that's also why I like bringing people on, um, it was like, well, I'm going to need more people who are smart and just as dedicated as I am to to kind of build this thing. So when you brought
2: them on, was it under the premise of we're we're just cash flow business we're gonna we're gonna make money and dividend it out to you as shareholders, or, or were you selling them on the dream of a SaaS company that would trade at some huge multiple down the road? Yeah,
0: it was it was the latter, right? Because none of us were. Again, I didn't even know that people like it. It sounds dumb, but I just didn't even know that like people. Like built a business just cash flow. <laughs> like I, like I know like people did that with like corner stores and stuff, but I didn't. It was like not even the thought, right? Um, and people do that with software companies all the time, but I just didn't know that either, right? So it was hey, we there's this space, there's this problem. It's a problem that's not being you know handled correctly. And then um, between Peter and Facundo is when we I, we started thinking about like we brought Facundo in as a contractor at first. Um, to kind of build the first app or the second app, I guess, in this case. And, and the idea was, okay, that was when the vision started broadening from pricing to just more, if we get this data, there's a lot of stuff we can help these companies with. Um, and so that was like really, really precipitated bringing him on. But it was this big vision of like, we don't know exactly where it's going to go, but we're all aligned and trying to build like as big of a thing as possible. Um, yeah. And I think that was the right thing too, because there was just so much chaos of like, We have no idea what's going on. And all of us were naive in our different ways, which I think ultimately ended up working out in a good way.
2: How did you figure out the equity split? Because you're the founder, you're the econometrics guy. Uh, I could make a pretty good case that, you know, you brought the lion's share of the value to the table. Uh, You you got the first $115,000 worth of sales. But these two individuals obviously were talented in their own way. So how did you think through the equity split given that they were yeah. both employees as well as, you know,
0: shareholders? It was really messy. Um, and it was messy because I, I had those other two part-time founders. like this problem wasn't solved within a year. Like it took four and a half years to like solve wow. that problem. And I, I think if I did it over again, what I would have done, and this is a maturity thing is I just, I would have went to those guys and I just would have said, Hey, the expectation we all had, all of us, not just me or you or whatever, is a lot different than what's happening right now. We need to like recap the company, um, and basically, um, you know, like get you guys are basically out. Like, we'll make you advisors, you know, and, and give you an equivalent amount of equity. But, um, and you know, I don't know. They would maybe think their their contribution was a lot more than that. I think it's what I just said, but you know, it's all done now. Right. And so you're not referring frankly, to Fikundo
2: and Peter, you're no, referring, to the, referring other to the other guys. So yeah. Were, yeah. Were
0: yeah. Totally. Totally. And, and it's one of those things that, so I had that at my back, like, or my, I don't know, it, that was bad. <laughs> and then, yeah. so bringing Peter on was actually really tough because I looked at these guys as actually bringing them on as like my co-founders. Like I didn't say that at the time, but it was like, I need full-time people in the business who are kind of generals who are like going after things. Like I, I knew enough to know that. I do not know if I articulated it that. And so Peter, like God rest his soul. Like here, like I didn't, like he didn't get what he was supposed to get in the beginning. Um, I think I'm okay saying, I don't know. It's I haven't gotten his permission to say that, but like I, it was a constant thing in my, like in my soul and in my gut where I was just like, I got to get this guy more. I got And like, he trusted me. So, and I got him what he deserves, but it was like, There's a lot of like, man, you got to trust me. You got to trust me. Like I'm working on it. I'm working on it. And then Facundo, actually his, I was very open with everything with him and Peter about how this was structured and how this was going. And actually bringing him on, he came onto the board. He got a good chunk of equity, which you know he deserves and all that kind of stuff. And so that was actually part of fixing this early mistake. And that early mistake the way we fixed it was not only just like straight up talking about it and doing stuff because you have two people who technically have equity and they don't, there's no incentive for them to give it up. Absolutely no incentive. Like no. So like we had to put in um, milestones and we hit the milestones and automatically get these big equity grants and that would dilute them down and push us up. And so it was, it, I, it always felt and I haven't really thought about it like this in a while. So good questions, but it always kind of felt like, I had this weird gun to my head because I was sitting there and it was, it was one of those things where I'm building this damn thing and these guys are building the damn thing with me. And if we were to recap the company, like it should have been, the numbers would instantly be better, right? And by the end we fixed them, but it it was, it was this weird feeling of like, like Fukuno didn't sign his employment agreement at first. Like we kept his employment agreement not signed now these guys weren't looking at any of like these details but we were like worst case there's gonna like there's so much wasted calories and this is why i said like rather than four and a half years of just trying to like do this and that like i think now i would have the maturity to go back and be like all right guys like i'm not going to do this like i'm just going to pick up and go do something else um or we're going to fix this right um and i think that would have helped a lot and the way we kind of fixed it over time to maybe answer your question in another practical way. um, And I know there's people listening to this who've gone through a similar situation with partners, whether it's in tech or not, because I was so embarrassed to talk about it for so long. And then what really helped me is I started like mentioning it to some people who were like advisors and stuff. And they were just like, yeah, this happens unfortunately all the time. And sometimes there's malice, sometimes there's not, but here's, you you gotta get out of it, right? And so that's what we worked on. But I think the way we thought about equity was, if you make the thing big enough, like there's enough value there that we want to incentivize people to to like really take ownership. And that was naive on one hand because there's a lot of people who just don't care about equity or they say they do and then they don't really care. And then there's a lot of people who like really understand it, really care about it. And so what we ended up doing um, over time is every time we made a job offer, there would be equity and cash incentives. Um, and so- basically you could choose more cash and less equity or vice versa. And then every time you had a pay raise, you were given an option of like all cash or partial cash and partial equity. Um, And that's kind of how we did it. And there was only a couple ways to get equity. And one of them was through a raise or, or um, there was a, there was a core group that was like, we wouldn't be here without them that every time we had a milestone, we would, we would give them, give them more equity basically. And so, yeah, that was kind of the thought process.
2: That's super helpful. When, when you were, doing that like a promotion where you could have it all in cash or cash and equity what valuation metric were you using mm. for the equity like how are you valuing the company for that purpose
0: yeah so we were we we never raised money so uh, i know not a lot of like there's tech people who listen so they're like oh that's crazy you're bootstrapped that's insane and you had a good exit and then all the like brick and mortar people are like, yeah, that's how you build a business. You don't raise money. <laughs> like, you know, that type of thing. Like, why would you get debt to build a car or a car wash or something? Right. Um, and so I think it that, that was for us. So the valuation we did, and I think this is important. Like if I did it all over again, I actually, I, it, it, I think I would do the same thing, but start communicating earlier about what this means and what this doesn't mean. And what I mean by that is, okay, um, we would put, Essentially the the lowest peg, we would offer three options. We would offer these options for choosing, but then we would show three scenarios of what that meant at different valuations. So the lowest number was always like the number, the minimum number we would sell for. Um, and that was just straight up just judgment between the three of us. Like we wouldn't sell for less than 75 million right now. We wouldn't sell for less than 50 million. And then we would show like, you know not necessarily a 10X, but like a 250 million sale and then a $500 million sales. And we would always say, you know, none of these are guaranteed, but this is just guidance on, this is how much this is worth, this the stock at these, you know, valuations. And that was always the mindset that we were gonna, you know, grow big, raise money eventually, public, all that kind of stuff. Um, we weren't building it for, you know, cash flow, uh, which, you know, maybe in hindsight, maybe we would have, um, but not this business because I think we were we were going for broke on this business.
2: And when you thought about the bottom number, like we wouldn't sell for anything less than the 50 million was, was the number you threw out. Yeah. What was your thinking between you and Facundo and, and Peter around that number? Like how did you arrive at your minimum number?
0: It, Frankly, it was, it was just mood and gut. <laughs> like it was just kind of, I mean, and some of these numbers weren't what we were worth either. Right. And it's, so it's like, Meaning the number was higher than what anyone would reasonably pay for it. But it also was just on how terrible the business was at the time. (laughs) Like when we were like, oh, this, and normally we would oscillate. Like someone would be like, we're taking over the world. While there's someone would be like, this is going to never work. And then we would switch essentially. Um, That's just kind of what would happen. But I think it was just, you know, it was a number that we would put and we would just have conversations about um, like, this is where the number is. Right. And, and it's kind of funny because when we decided or were approached to kind of sell our calculate, like we had to get a little bit more expected value about it because now there was like an actual opportunity. But I think at the time, and and I think this is good for a lot of business owners is like, you should always have a number in the back of your mind, in my mind, like, and you know, I'm starting this little side project right now. Like the number is probably like, I don't know, A million dollars for the side project, no one is going to pay for that side project because there's not even a website right now. But like, that's the number, right? Like, oh, I'm going to do this opportunity. And the reason is, is because I think it helps you think about the longevity of your business and also think about that, like, what you're doing has value. And if you think about what you're doing has value, you presumably are either okay with that value being flat or you want that number to like go up. So you're going to go do things. And then six months later, you're going to be like, well, now my number is 2 million or my number is 1.5 or whatever it ends up being. Um, and I think that helps a lot because at the end of the day, you're creating enterprise value, whether you have a car wash or, you know, a traditionally venture backed tech company. Um, and I think that's important to keep in mind.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I want to close the loop on the, on the, on the, Conversation we had about extracting yourself from a difficult situation. And again, I realize it's a bit sensitive. So if you can't get into details, you can can go go around it. But but if I'm paraphrasing what I think I'm hearing about about the original story, is that you had a couple of folks who who you started the business with you were the one putting in the 18-hour days. They were on the sidelines and and, and kind of giving their opinion and so forth. Um, but, but everybody had equity. Yeah. And, and then as the business formalized and start to get a revenue and traction, you, you were like, what on earth did I do here? I've given <laughs> equity to these guys who aren't really, you know, doing a lot or adding a lot of value because they've gone off and done their own thing. And so you had to sort of extract yourself from that commitment. Am I getting, am I paraphrasing that? Right?
0: Yeah. Ish. And it's, it's a little hard to, not because it's sensitive in general, but also because I, I would say like, if you ask these guys, they, they would say like, and they didn't provide zero value in the beginning, mm-hmm. right? They knew stuff I didn't know and talking about it, but I think that there's a difference between ideas and advice and execution, right? right. And I think that in my opinion, and I think they would agree execution is where the lion's share of enterprise value should like be given, right? Like you always hear ideas are crap or, you know, the, the not so PC version of saying that, right. Or, mm-hmm. you know, ideas are 5% executions, 95%, like that type of a thing. And so they, there was a point where they, they did add value in the beginning, like from an ideas perspective or from like an education perspective, then it kind of got into this. Like you described it as like, what am I doing? Like, these guys are just a tax. Like they're not helping like, and, Part of that's true and part of that's just my you know because it was so different right so I think it was zero and really it was probably a little bit more and then it got to a point because they were on our board like this entire time because that was our board that's how it was structured and they they provide a lot of value when they when we like formalized our board and it w- was nowhere near what a traditional benchmark of worth was for their um, for their uh, numbers and stuff like that but it's one of those things where I think that again if I had that conversation early, it would have been, it, we could have saved ourselves a lot of trust, right? Um, and a lot of tax just on stuff. Cause, cause I think it, it to, to even show you how much worse it was, like our lawyer was one of their sister-in-laws mm-hmm. and it's, it's like, just imagine being in my position. Like I, I, in the worst interpretation, these guys are trying to screw me and take advantage of me, right? And the best interpretation, we're just all naive, which I think is the reality, right? Or at least I need, that's how I need to think. Because I still like these guys, like they're brothers to me. It's just, the problem is, is that I'll never trust them to the level that I might want to. Because, and it, 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 it maybe is not their fault at all because we were just all naive. Wow. And if I just would have said, Hey guys, like we just need to redo this and rehab this hard conversation now, rather than having little hard or hard, hard conversations over four and a half years, it could have saved like the relationship I would argue um, so, and, so what did, yeah. so did they put in cash or was it
2: just ideas?
0: Just ideas. Yeah. That's basically <laughs> what it was. There was technically it, a little bit of cash, but it was like, they had sold an app, but I didn't get it for like 10 months. Like I was supposed to get it the day one. And then like, I'm maxing out all my credit cards and like, you know, I didn't get the cash until it was literally like February, that February. And so, so maybe like, uh, nine or 10 months there, but Yeah. And so that's, it It just was messy. It was just so messy for no reason. And it was me being very Midwestern and being like, well, you know, like just, I trust like out of the gate rather than being like, let's put in a bunch of checks and balances. And I don't know, they also knew each other since high school. So like, there's all these things that made it easy for me to be like, these guys are screwing me over. These guys are screwing me over. And then they didn't help by like the way they prioritized what they thought we needed to talk about. It was very clear route to like them and their pain. Like I kind of mentioned like filing our taxes, right? Well, if so-and-so is like, oh shit, I need to get that filed or whatever. And I'm like, hey, we're just going to file an extension because I'm trying to get this customer thing figured out and everything. And they're like, no, no, you have to, why don't you hire, you need an operations person. You're terrible at this blah, Blah blah. And it's like, it's only coming from like, you need something and there's a burning thing. And I'm like, this is not what's important in the business, but I I don't like, I'm like, maybe I do suck at that. Like it, it is all these like little areas where like trust and vulnerability were just so hard. And it's also like all three of us are different people 10 years later. Right. So it's, it all worked out. It's good. But I think the way it worked out, unfortunately, like, like everyone, like they made probably more money than they deserved. I made a little less money than I probably deserved. But like, it's a naive tax like it's fine right like i'm so, gonna do So, did they business, remain but... as
2: shareholders all the way to the end to the uh, the padlock yeah it's
0: so all the way oh, to wow. the end so they were on our board right so they our board board quote-unquote wasn't really that formal of a board but like you know they were involved and like because we never zeroed them out or anything like that um and so they were just always diluted down with these milestones and then at the end like um Basically, you know, they again, they like if we would keep going, they would have got diluted more, and so it's it's kind of like a. At the end of the day, like it's unfair for me to be like, like I said, yes, philosophically, did they probably get more than they deserved from the value perspective, and I got less, <laughs> almost absolutely right. Yeah, but is it two million dollars? Is it five hundred thousand dollars? Is it this much? Like, it's 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 it was handled by me so poorly that it's like it's hard to say so that's why i say it's like it's a naive tax right and the first time you sell a business if you do it in this messy or if you start a business in this messy of a manner these are just the implications um that that you have to deal with and you have to be i had to come to peace with that and that's why i like again i love these guys like brothers and i'm not like screw these guys or anything like that but i do know like i will never fully trust them the the way i trust like a facundo or a peter if that makes sense and i'm not saying that's on them i'm saying it's on me because i should have handled this in a way and i probably should still even be like hey guys i just want to wrap this up like i think we have had some of those conversations but i just want to be like hey i just want to wrap this up like this is how i feel um you know and and that's you know it sucks and i don't know if you feel the same way and i don't know but we're men and we don't talk about our feelings unless it's on a podcast, I guess. So, yeah, that's how it works. So, yeah.
2: <clears throat> so, there, I want to make sure I I understand the the way to get out of a situation like this. Because I think a lot of people listening to this will be like, that is exactly me. Yeah. We all yeah. got in a bar. We got a napkin together. We sketched out this great idea with this business. I went away and did all the work. And then literally. I've got yeah, these, yeah. these other folks who, you know, technically they own, but they're not doing anything. So, the way... So the way, as I'm understanding it correctly, you extracted yourself to some extent was to say, okay, I'm gonna put numbers in in up there and say, okay, theoretically you guys own 25% of this business, but you're not doing anything for that. And I'm putting it 18 hours a day. So if I my my back, my my BATNA, my best <laughs> alternative to negotiated agreement, or my you know, plan B is to go walk away and go do yep. this somewhere else or go get a job or whatever. So if you want me to keep running this company and building it like you know I can. I need a bigger slice of the equity and you need to take a smaller slice. So if I hit these milestones, if I hit X million, Y million, you agree that your share goes down, my share goes up. Otherwise, guys, I'm walking away. And I'm going to go do this with somebody else, with other partners, or get a job. Am I kind of paraphrasing the the conversation
0: a little bit? To not be in this situation at all, founder vesting. And there was this guy uh, who was like a networker in Boston Tech he was like, dude, you need founder vesting. I said, no, though, like I was- What's founder needed. vesting? Founder vesting is basically like everyone vests. Investing, if you don't know, is like, okay, here's, you know, you're gonna get 50%, I'm gonna get 50%. Yeah. But we're issued that, but there's like a cliff, meaning we get that that equity parsed out over 48 months. So four four years, we get 1 48th every month, but then there's a cliff of one year, meaning if we didn't make it to the year, we don't get anything. So on your first year and one day, you get uh, a quarter of your grant. Basically, that would have solved a lot of problems because all of a sudden it's like, well, you guys aren't in it. Like we're gonna like fix this vesting schedule, right? That would have given me a lever, right? Um, I just didn't have any levers because it was like you have this much, you have this much, I have this much, right? <laughs> and so like that's that's like and so to to kind of affirm what you said, I think. I didn't have the courage to walk away. I didn't have the confidence because it was the first time I ever built a business. And I was like, in hindsight, I was like, oh, I was making a lot of progress. And I felt like I sucked all the time, but like, that's, I was grinding. Right. And so it was basically, we got to fix this or, or I'm out, but not handled as maturely as like a direct conversation like that. It was me like being like, I don't know if I could, cause I was always like, they could technically fire me. Like I was always like, There's three seats on a board. They could fire me like two seats to one, right? Oh, I didn't even
2: realize that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Like, like, so, so I'm sitting there and again, I, this is, I I haven't had that many jobs, let alone like a leadership job. I'm running (laughs) this company. He's like, okay, so they could technically fire me. And technically this IP could be them of all the stuff I did. So there's all these like, and this guy, Dave Balter was a huge mentor of mine in, in Boston. And he's a serial entrepreneur. He was just like, listen, like you can do this again. You gotta be willing to walk away you gotta be willing to be like, guys, if it's not fixed, I'm gone. And, and like, it was hard. Like it was really hard. And, um, I, I piecemailed it too much. Like I was like, oh, we're going to bring on Facundo that'll dilute these guys. We're going to bring this person on to this. We're going to do these performance grants. And it would have saved myself a lot of heartburn, but I also didn't know. Right. Like I was like, okay, maybe like this is the route and yada, yada, yada. And, um, yeah, that's why I say it's a maturity thing. So I think if you're in this situation having direct conversations, but being, and this is this gets into negotiation, your ultimate leverage has to be you're willing to walk away, right? Like even when we got into this deal, you know, like we're talking so much about the beginning, but the end, like talking about all that negotiation, it's like what made us powerful is we weren't willing, like we weren't trying to sell. And so all of a sudden it was like, well, worst case scenario, we're bad now as we go work on this business that we love and built, right? Um, And I think that's the thing I just didn't have. And that on top of the maturity to be like, let's have a, you know, a professional conversation about this.
2: That's super helpful. I appreciate you going there with me because I think there are, again, a lot of people listening who have found themselves by hook or by crook with partners, equity holders that maybe uh, aren't quite adding the value that they thought or anticipated at the beginning. So it's super helpful to just hear the story and and your humility about the whole thing is
0: what i have found since then because i've coached some people through these situations is if you just have a straight up conversation the other side is not an idiot the other side feels it as well right or it's like objective enough to point out right um and i think that I that that founder tax or that naive tax that I talked about like that's always going to be in play. Like you have a business partner, you love them and they're they're like everything was amazing for 2 years, but then you're scaling and they're not, right? They're going to end up with more equity than they probably deserve, but that's okay, right? Because you started it together and it's so amorphous in terms of that value and I just think the checks and balances and all that legal stuff that we always as founders or business owners put off because it's not the thing that's right in front of us. This stuff's important because it bites you in the ass later. And, and I think that's the thing I didn't appreciate. I still probably don't appreciate it enough. Hmm.
2: How big did you get profit well before you decided to sell or were approached about an acquisition?
0: Yeah. So we were about, headcount was just under a hundred. Um, and then we were, you know, we're not, I have a boss now and an official, a real board, so I can't disclose all the numbers, but I had, we had, you know, into the eight figures in annual revenue um, and recurring revenue because it was, we sold our own subscription um, as we were helping subscription companies.
2: Got it. So a uh, hundred employees, eight figures in, in recurring revenue. And, and what triggered the conversation to sell? I mean, was there a straw that broke the camel's back?
0: Yeah, I think, um, we knew we had these big ambitions that i talked about right we had these big ambitions and then on top of those ambitions we ended up having um we reached a stage where we said okay there is no company we were past 10 million at that point we're in 100 million so there's there's a good range for you there's not a single company that's gone from 10 to 100 using an inside sales model. So a sales team basically to sell who has not raised money in in our industry, in tech or SaaS in this case, we're not going to be the first. And so we know we're going to have to get on that treadmill at some point, but we said, we're not going to do that until we know what we're going to do with the money and then what the reasonable return would be on that money. So basically understanding our funnels and how we can add integrations or something like that in order to get more customers. Um, And we started having like a lot of $10,000 arguments, which don't make sense for a company of our size or at the time. What's a $10,000 argument? Like, I don't, like what I mean by that is someone wants to do something that Logically makes sense; the numbers add up, but it's cost ten thousand dollars. But we're still having an argument about it because cash flow for us, we would always like run it to the rail, um, like with a little bit of buffer. And it was like, well, we have this much buffer after this quarter of sales. How do we reinvest it in the next quarter, right? But it's still a limited amount of money, right? And, and it wasn't actually ten thousand dollars, but it's like you got five people. All of these initiatives are good. All of these initiatives would move us forward. They all need between ten and fifty thousand dollars. And we're like, well, I don't know. Like, uh, ah. and then because you're having those arguments, it almost is like none of them get funded because you're like, well, these two are kind of the same, but I don't know how to pick one, right? And so a venture back company, they they have conversations like that, but their level might be a hundred thousand dollars. Like it's a hundred thousand dollar argument, right? And as you get bigger, like every business owner listening, it's like there was a point where, oh, I gotta buy the team lunch. I'm going to. McDonald's. Then it was I'm going to Chipotle. Then it was all right. Let's buy him dinner. Then it was like let's give him gift card. Like your your level of like what is a big expense changes as you get bigger, um, and you get more confidence in your sales, right? But for us, it was we just were fighting so many fronts that we were like we need to raise money, and um, it was gonna we were gonna start looking to raise at the end of last year. I knew the CEO of Paddle, a guy named Christian, um, really well, um, known him for a while, and it was basically started talking to him about like advice, like, hey, here's what we're doing. And he kind of like got in front of me and was like, well, what if we bought you? And we went through, oh my God, not our baby. You can't buy our baby. It's so, it's so precious. No one can ever raise our baby. Right. And then within like a week, we kind of got over that and we were like, well, if they check all of these boxes, um, they can buy us. Right. And we did an expected value analysis because we didn't just talk to them. We then opened it up to 12 different companies, 12 to 14 different companies. Were you and, still
2: open to both an investment or an outright acquisition at this stage? Or were you, had you moved straight over to acquisition?
0: Yeah. And so that we, we decided to go from never running a financing process nor a sales process to let's try to do both at the same time. Uh, and so, uh, which is hard so you're mode, open to as both. they say. Yeah, we're open to both because it was kind of like we knew we were going to raise money. And then everyone tells you if, if you're in a kind of venture-backed kind of space, it's like do both processes at the same time because then you can play them off each other theoretically, right? And so to make a long story short, we, we went out to these 12 people. We're like, hey, we got some interest um, you know, do you want to chat? And that kind of kicked things off. And then we also started putting together like a raise. Um, we were primarily going after the, um, the, um, the, the sale conversation because we kind of had this bird in the hand, but it was one of those situations too. We are sitting there and we were like, okay, like, yeah, we talked to this person out of the 12, but God, their number is going to be a lot higher for us to go work there than this number. Right. So we weren't thinking about it as like, we're going to hear the keys, have a good day. Like we still wanted to keep going, which also limited the space that we went to rightly or wrongly. Like we weren't going to private equity firms. We weren't going to like, you know, traditional banking, like exits, those types of things. We were strictly looking at strategics, which, um, strategics are basically like they would like our product or our customer base or something like that to add into theirs. And so, um, yeah, it was an interesting process. And then, the raising money on top of it. We didn't go deep on that as, as much, but we started having initial conversations before our boxes started to get really checked. Um,
2: what what multiple of, I know we can't actually reveal the revenue you were at at the time. Uh, so I totally respect that. At the same time, I'd love to know as you started this process and, and identified a, a dozen or so companies to go to, had you started to formulate... Um, you and Facundo and Peter, a sense of what multiple of revenue you might garner in the marketplace? And yeah. what were you guys thinking in your heads?
0: Well, so the advantage of a strategic, it's also the disadvantage of a strategic, is the numbers are very fluffy. <laughs> because. A very what? Fluffy. Because. Fluffy. Yeah. So, like, if, if we go to a PE firm, PE firm's going to go growth rate, customer size put it through a spreadsheet. This is the multiple we can give you. There's a little bit of a range, right? And I think the thing that we didn't realize, which was both problematic, but also kind of good, was we had this free customer base, which is hard to value. We have actual pure SaaS revenue, so 95% margin revenue. And then we still had that services arm, which was like 50% revenue or 55% revenue at close. And so we're sitting there and it's like, it's hard to analyze that business right and so it it became one of these things where we kind of just played the negotiation game frankly like hey like we're talking nine figures right okay here's what we're thinking hey there's this here's this that and then kind of the the climax of this was i i straight up told christian it's in we did a documentary on this and so it's just public i straight up said like hey if you can get to 200 million like we have offers that are higher And we have offers that are probably valued at higher because of their stock. Um, But if you get there, all the other checkboxes that weren't the numbers, like the roles that we were going to have, what the team is going to have, the mission, the upside, all these other things, those were really, really like all checked. But if you can get to that number, the expected value of the whole thing shakes out, right? Um, And it ended up being not exactly 200 million. And so, um, but... It was one of those things where he was like, okay, like he didn't say it just like that, but he like went back, got it, that type of thing. And then, you know, we, we definitely like let the other folks know. Um, and we, we were gonna stay true to our word um, that I gave Christian, but then we did have someone try to come back and like up their offer and stuff like that. And so it was, it was more of a game of like pitting folks against each other than it was like this multiple, right? Because we did have conversations where they would try to give us multiples on different things and we would go, you're not valuing the free customer base. And they'd be like well blah blah, blah. And we're like well this other company is valuing the free customer base like and it kind of got into more of a negotiation and sales process than it did like a financial process if that makes sense
2: yeah 100% so let me just understand the three forms of value you saw so there's the free customer base free user yep. base which was which was i think 30,000 i think at some yep. point you mentioned there's a lot of a lot of uh, businesses using the free tool and then you had you had annual recurring revenue, like pure play SaaS revenue. Yep, and, and and then you also had some services revenue. Yep, and 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 just to, the proportions. Obviously, the free is free. The ARR, did you say it was ninety five percent ballpark?
0: Ninety five percent margin. So ninety five percent margin. Margin. Okay. margin.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. What proportion of your revenue would have been ARR versus uh, services?
0: So it's hard because technically it's all ARR. Because it was okay. all subscription contracts. So 100% of it was subscription contracts. I mean, maybe like 5% one time deals here and there. The split between the pure software and the um, the service subscriptions was closer to like 50 yeah. um, 50. And the pure software was trending to take over a proportion of it. Um, and so, yeah, and it was hard too because. I think a lot of these numbers when you get into it, like unless you're a pure play or you're part of a roll-up, like someone's trying to buy you as part of a roll-up, like there's a lot of that happening in like the HVAC world and dentistry and stuff like that. It's like in those worlds that it's hard to kind of negotiate because you might have two roll-up entities trying to buy you and you can kind of play them off each other, but there's a little bit of price fixing unintentionally happening because there's a model that they're fixing and both models are probably very similar. For us, there was enough flexibility where it was like, again, our BATNA was we just go raise money and still create a great business, right? And I think that helped us a lot too. Um, it even helped us in diligence because diligence, there's a, like there wasn't any big bombshell in diligence. Like once we had agreed on a price and the LOI was signed for the paddle. Like we didn't try to reprice. There was anything like that. Um, We could have tried to reprice in certain things. They could have tried to reprice in anything. But we kind of, Christian and I talked. And I think this was really important too, the relationship. And so what I recommend to people is if you're ever going to sell your business, and sometimes you don't think you will, but if you're listening to this, you're probably thinking you'll sell your business one day. um, Build those relationships earlier. Like I'd known Christian for like six years for the conferences and stuff like that. And I'd known, you know, the corp dev person at this company and the corp dev person at that company. Um, and I think it's really important to build those relationships because then when you get to this, all right, we're going to get married stage, it's kind of more of an arranged marriage feel because you haven't worked together, right? I was able to go to Christian and be like, hey man, like if you're good with this number, like I'm good with this number, but we don't want horse trading on either side later, Right assuming there isn't, you know, like negligent, you know, bad stuff that was found in diligence, right? And and we agreed on that and we stuck to that, right? And we also kind of had this red phone concept where when the lawyers were doing their jobs, our lawyers and their lawyers when she's, you know, trying to get the best for their side, we were able to call each other and be like, "Hey, like can we just you and I just figure this out and we'll tell the lawyers what to do?" Because there were conversations we had with the lawyers where oh, we just talked for a half hour about something that cost 15 grand. But we spent 30 grand talking about it. And it's like, it's like Christian and I would be on some of these calls and just go, we text each other and be like, Do you just want to split this? And you'd be like, Yeah. And I'd be like, Cool. Uh, Christian and I have been talking. Uh, we're just going to split this. And the lawyers would hate it. But it just, we had that relationship. And there's some reasons you shouldn't do that. But I think it's just one of those things that it's, it's hard emotionally when you get through these processes for so many reasons. And you're going to think, Oh, they're going to try to screw you, this kind of thing. And, I had three people had gone through sales before that I would text and I like, hey, can you kind of be my Sherpa through this? And anytime I felt that, I'd be like, hey, is this like unreasonable? And they'd be like, no, it's really standard. Like you're fine. And that type of stuff would happen. And what, what
2: kind of what kind of stuff did you text your buddies, the three people that have been through it before? Can you give a, a specific example of something you would have said? Is this kind of standard? Like, have you ever heard of something like
0: this before? Yeah, um, things like they would ask so we, we, they would ask for, um, so one really practical thing, we, we were not as organized as we should have been. And well, we were not organized for a sale, let's put it that way. Um, should we have been organized? I don't know, like probably for our stage, but we wouldn't, we wouldn't prioritize ops and finance like the mechanics of ops and finance because that wasn't putting the money on the field in the right way, and we were just getting to a point where a really good financial person or really good operation person would start to add a ton of enterprise value. So we had one guy who ran all of operations and finance. Um, his name's Andy. He's like a tank. Like you know, he's he's not like I am a savant. He's like I'll go figure it out. It's not going to be perfect, but it'll be done and legal and compliant and all that kind of stuff. And so I think that. What happened is um, we just, reason I was bringing this up is because I wish, we got really good advice, we just didn't follow it correctly. We got advice that we should prep the company for sale and just do that a couple of years ago and just like prep the company for sale, get everything in order. What we should have done is we should have went to our lawyers and said, hey, we're gonna prep the company for sales five years ago. Can you send us the last diligence checklist that you used for a business sale of any kind, that would have been amazing. instead, what we did is like, well, what do you think prepping the company for sale means uh, I think maybe means putting the docu signs all in the same place. All right, yeah, let's go do that, right? So that we kind of did it logically when rather like these these DD requests, these diligence requests are pretty standard. So I bring that up because not only because I think that's a really helpful tip, but also because all of a sudden, sitting there, we were we were we were like, Oh, they're asking us for, um, I mean, like, they're asking us for this compliance thing with the Department of Justice, right? We've never talked to the Department of Justice, right? Like, we have no idea, right? And so we go to the, we go to the, the. I went to those guys and I was like, hey, is this? And I always ask them separately because they'll all give different answers sometimes. And all of them were like. If you don't have it, just say you don't have it, right? Like it was that type of stuff. We were like scared if we didn't have something, we were just like really bad and it would like throw everything off. And we had already told like our very core management team. And so tanking the deal had implications, right? We, weren't, we were willing to do it under the right circumstances, but um, so there's a lot of that stuff. I think that we also, towards like the end of diligence, Paddle was like, all right, great. Let's start figuring out integration. And I was very much like, don't do anything. Because this all this still all could fall apart, right? They're probably on their end, like, this is not gonna fall apart. We're over this hurdle and this hurdle. But I'm like, last three weeks, there could be a thing, there could be a bullet, there could be all these other things. And it, it was just one of those things that talking to those guys, they were like, No, like it's okay that your salesperson goes to their office and like talks through how the sales teams are gonna work. It's not a trick. You know, there's a lot of that stuff that I think just you're you're you've never done it before. And so this was probably one of the easier like processes to go through for your first time. And I'm glad it I did because it it just built the emotional callous to be like, okay, this stuff's standard, like we're all incentivized to get this done, et cetera. Yeah. Let's talk about the incentives because again, and again, if
2: I'll ask the question you can confirm or deny or say I can't answer, but my yeah, understanding yeah. is that the deal was around $200 million and it was a combination of cash plus equity and Paddle. Are you able to share roughly the proportions, cash versus equity?
0: Yep. So it was over two hundred million, um, and it was uh, basically half and half.
2: Got it. That's helpful. And then I, I listened somewhere to a podcast in prep that that as a result of this deal. Uh, you minted 13 new millionaires with you know employees of profit well or shareholders of profit well uh, 35 people walked away with six figures of uh you know consideration and yep. a full hundred or so kind of got some consideration in the deal yeah um am i getting those numbers ballpark right
0: yeah that's about right and that's that's total consideration so you know i'm sure there's someone who's 13 of those 13 that technically they didn't get a million dollars in cash, but you know, they got cash and equity. So of the consideration. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Total consideration. That's what's that feel like?
0: (laughs) Feels pretty cool. I think, uh, I don't know. I think I, it's, it's kind of funny because I posted this on Twitter actually. And some people were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they were kind of talking crap about people who don't do what we did. And I don't like, I think if you, there's totally justification for you retaining a hundred percent of your equity. Like, I think that's totally, like if you're a business owner and even if you have a hundred people, you still retain a hundred percent of it. I, I think I would want to, if I was your friend, I'd be like, you did all of this, like from an enterprise value, like maybe your core executives should get something right. But I, I don't judge it. Right. I think, I just think it feels cool. I think it's like, I wanted to be known as a founder who everyone gets paid. Right. Um, I think that's the thing that I want where it's like, everyone gets paid and I, I'll take care of you. Yeah. I got the most cause you know, I was there first, you know, that type of a thing. Right. It's not a, you know, it's not, you know, equal, equal, uh, distribution here, but, um, you know, like it, it is also kind of funny too, because we literally announced it. So signed the thing, we did a split signing close, which I didn't know what this meant. So just for folks listening, we signed on one day and then there was like two weeks of like closing stuff, like kind of like closing on a house, you're like, we had to get everyone to sign employment docs. And there was a couple of cleanup things, that type of thing. And so, um, what was really interesting about it is we announced, we signed April 8th, I think it was. And then that Monday, which uh, was like the 11th, um, announced to the team, the team kind of knew something was going on because we flew people in and all that kind of stuff. And so announced it. And then I went into like 80 to 90 different one-on-ones Like just, just like with everybody and like telling them, all right, this is what you're getting. Here's your offer from paddle here. are The options on top of what you're getting that you're going to get in paddle, which is kind of cool. And mostly everyone got a raise. There were some folks that we had already upcycled their comp, um, prior to the things. So there's something like no one made less money, but, um, mostly everyone got a raise, which was kind of cool. And I think when you go through those conversations, I had people cry over $10,000 of joy, like tears of joy. And I had people pissed over six figures, like I didn't deserve enough, et cetera. And so, people are weird, and you don't know who's the one who's gonna cry and who's the ones who are gonna like. That was another thing. Like money is just weird. Money is weird with people, and I, I, it was kind of caught me off guard. Most people are just kind of like, "Oh, this is great, thank you," like and stuff like that. But then, plenty of people would have very uh, intense reactions, and. Um, mostly all positive. A couple of them were, were kind of negative, but, you know, we took care of that too. Like anyone who was like, I deserve, like there was one person that thought they deserved more and we were like, well, you, you always chose cash or you did choose cash the last couple of times, etc. And, and like in their raises and then, but even Peter Fakuna and I, we were just like, listen, like we don't want anyone to be pissed. So we gave them some of our options that we got as part of our, our um, package because we are just like, it's it, life's too short, right? I think with some of this stuff, especially like we're talking like, Thirty grand, I'm giving up over like tens of millions of dollars that I got. Right, it's it's like this person's happy. They they feel like they're whole and everything like that. We had another person. There was a miscommunication about award. We did an award every year, and you know they they thought they just got that, and we were like, no, it vests like all equity vests, which is like very clearly laid out. But it was like ten grand, and we we're like. Here's a 10 grand, you know, it's just like, it's not worth, um, the quibbling. Now there were some people that there was one person, um, I will get too deep in the details. Cause I think people could figure out who it is that like, they, it, there was no justification for their negative feeling. And so we didn't, we didn't make them whole. Cause we were just like, no, like this is very well documented. We've had this argument several times, like before all this happened, like, like we're not gonna, you know, but, but whenever there was like a little bit of ambiguity, we tried to take care of the team.
2: Did the process of those 80 to 90 one-on-ones leave you with more or less faith in humanity?
0: (laughs) That's a great question. Um, You know, it's funny. I intuitively want to say more faith in humanity, but I, I feel as if I, It made me feel as if, yeah, I think more faith, because I think a lot of people, like, they know they're getting equity, but it's an early stage bootstrap company, right? They they think it could be worth something one day, but the more astute of them are like, I kind of have to assume this is zero, right? Like, that's how they're thinking about it. And that's, you know, when you invest in a market or whatever, you should always like, assume it's going to be zero. It's probably not, but like, assume it'll be zero, Right. And so I think a lot of people, like, I'll tell you, like sending the email to the people who are no longer with the company who had equity, especially those that like did not leave under great circumstances, it sounds petty, but that, that helped me because the number of, so one, I got, you know, like, it was nice to be like, yeah, I got you paid. You're an ass, but I got you paid. Right. Um, But it was also like the number of people who kind of like responded to that. And I didn't send a petty email. I I sent like, hey, guys, just letting you know, congrats, blah, blah, blah. And I got a number of responses that were like, hey, um, I know I was difficult. I've grown a lot from it. Like, thank you for taking care of us. Because the other thing that people don't realize is if you're doing a private company sale, everything is negotiable. I could have went to Paddle and been like, hey, if I don't get 95% of the consideration, like I'm not selling the company. I would not have done that. And, and, and but, it, but like you could do that, right? Like we could have screwed over the people who are no longer at the company. Like there were opportunities where the lawyers, not intentionally, but just through their logic, were basically offering up options to like make someone less consider, or group less consideration and me more consideration. So it kind of took like a good kind of compass to be like, no, nope, this is the spirit of what we've said, the spirit of what we said, even if we made a mistake and gave that person too much equity, they're gonna get it, right? So I think that helped because people saw that and then they recognized like, okay, I thought you wouldn't do the right thing, but you guys did the right thing. And, and that gave me faith in humanity because it was like, okay, like people see that, you know, it's not just cold-blooded capitalism. It's like, you know, like we're, we're gonna take care of people. and. Stand by our word and they there and are going to, you know, recognize that, which I think is, gives me faith.
2: Awesome. I know your time is precious. I had a lightning round of four or five questions. I'd Let's love to blast your way. Are you, uh, are you good for a lightning round?
0: Yeah, you're fine. I, I texted the person, so we're good.
2: Awesome. Uh, slimiest trick, a potential acquirer or investor, and you talked to a lot of them in the, the dozen or so that you spoke with, tried to pull the wool over your eyes with.
0: Um, I don't know if it was slimy, but we did get an offer that was like, like an extreme amount of equity that they were like really, really trying to like pitch as like liquid, like in the sense of like, oh, it's just like cash. And it's like, mm, it's not cash. Like it's, it's, it's not cash. So, um, yeah, that's a good question. I'm going to ponder that and come up with a better answer probably in an hour, but that's, yeah, that, that was like the closest thing. Um, yeah, I think we had a pretty good process. I think a lot of A people, like there's always these horrible stories, but it's like 90 to 95% of it is like, people know, even if you're handing over the keys, there's still implications they might need your help on. You can screw them over. They can screw you over. It's like this nice balance of power that happens that all of a sudden, like people know not to be like complete jerks. I think the problem comes when you think oh, the PE firm bought me and all of a sudden the revenue went up 10X. Oh, I should have gotten more. And it's like, no, because you didn't have the guts to do the thing that they did to get it to 10X, right? And so like, you don't deserve that. So you have to be at peace when you sell. So yeah, so nothing slimy, but that that's some food for thought.
2: Super helpful. Uh-huh. Biggest mistake you made during the exit process. So again, I'll invite you to think about sort of talking to 12 different firms, Settling with paddle, due diligence, check clears the bank, biggest mistake you made in that, in that window? Um,
0: I think there's a couple, so I'm not going to say biggest, but I'll say some big mistakes. One, defining my role before the close, uh, my role at the new company, because we were going to keep moving to the new company. I think Faku took over all of product. Peter took over a big part of sales. I became chief strategy officer. And- it's it's not that we're not gonna figure it out and we haven't figured out a lot of it. It just was like, yeah, yeah, we'll figure it out later, right? And then I think that created a little bit of a vacuum that caused like a lot of just friction initially because it was like, okay, you want me to look at that? Well, when I hear look at it, it's not take it over, but it's like, go deep on it. And really what they meant is like, go have a, con- a few conversations about it, right? And so it's just different expectations were set because my role wasn't defined. Um, I do think a lot about, and I'm at peace with it. Like, should we have hired a banker? I don't know. Like, I think if we had hired a banker, some of the conversations we had, we just wouldn't have had. Cause there's a lot of m people just don't like dealing with bankers, right? Um, but if we would have, and, and I struggle with like, should we have gone to PE or other buyers? Um, we didn't talk to any of them. Um, and so like, maybe that was a mistake. And then the last mistake was, um, just our operations stuff and finance stuff could have been in a lot. Like it just would have saved us so much heartburn if we had went to those lawyers and asked for the list three years ago and then fixed everything. Um, it would have saved us a lot of heartburn. Um, and then four. uh, Like just understand taxes, (laughs) understand how you're structured, understand, because it'll just cost you a lot to fix it during diligence. Um, And if you kind of figure that early on, um, there's so many resources. But again, when you're you're just starting to get something going, if it's your first business or even your second business, like you're thinking about building the business. You're not thinking about all the operations stuff. Just think about that stuff.
2: Taxes in particular and the impact of selling shares versus... All assets, kinds of stuff. I'm assuming. Yeah
0: and, yeah. and it was all fixed. We did like reverse triangle merger, blah, 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 all this other stuff. But like all that stuff just made lawyer fees higher when we could have just had it structured differently. Now, it, there's a lot of things you're not going to know, so you're going to start to spend money there. But if we just would have understood some some things or at least invested in certain things, it would have saved us some heartburn. But, you know, it's all it's all armchair quarterbacking at the end of the day. Lowest emotional
2: point you reached during the exit process.
0: Um, there wasn't one point. It just was a lot of like up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, because you don't have perfect information. You guys are technically against, not against, but like on the other side of the table. Um, I think there were a lot of arguments that ended up being had between Peter Facundo and I they weren't all volatile at all, but like there were a lot of arguments about like, not should we stop doing this or not, but just I I always was the, the cop when it came to like, I was always like the guy who had to say no with things just in the business in general because I controlled the finances and such. And so there was just a lot of that where it was like, hey guys, we're, we're in diligence right now. You can't spend this money over here. Like like, Facundo was like, well, I gotta like spend the money on this before the sale because after the sale, I was like, no, 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 you, like we have to tell them we're spending this money at this point. Like, You can't just like do that. And he, he thought he was doing the right thing, but it was just a lot of like, I had perfect information or mostly perfect information and they didn't. So there's a lot of like, like I would talk to Peter and Peter would be like, well, I gotta go do this, this, and this. And I was like, Pete, you can't do that. Like we can't rock the boat in the last 30 days or whatever it is. Right. Um, And none of it would have been terrible in hindsight. It just was a lot of like those conversations and some of those I was totally right on in hindsight and others of it, it was like, Oh, I thought that would have mattered and didn't really matter. And that was just tough because it was the first time going through it.
2: Yeah. And your buddies and co-founders highest point emotionally.
0: Um, having the conversation, I think with everybody and like having that moment, um, and then I think the other, the other part was like the early process, part of the process. I don't know about everyone listening, but my, I found a lot of us business owners, founders were like insecure. We're always a little paranoid. There's a lot of fear of like, everything's going to fail, blah, blah, blah. Like, and then there's something are very positive and I don't know how they, they get their job done. But I think for me going through the initial conversations and getting like offers, I was like, oh, like we're pretty, we have value. Like I didn't, I didn't even think like we had this, like, you know what I mean? You're like that number. Oh, okay. Like, you know, you're, you're like, oh, I, you know, cause you're always thinking of how everything's wrong. Right. And you don't take a step back and realize this is why I think that having that number in the back of your mind always is really important because you end up realizing like, okay, like, yeah, the number at the end is higher than that number, but it's not like not always that much higher, if that makes sense. So that, that was a really high point. Cause I was like, oh, we like, we did something cool. We did something great
2: resources you turn to in addition to the three friends of yours who have gone through an exit that help educate you about the process of selling a company books, uh, courses, you know, YouTube, but like, what did you, what did you
0: discover? Yeah. I read your book. So there you go. Let's get, let's get that plug. Oh, in cool. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I think, um, it was mostly just other founders. That was where, and that's, they had recommended your book. I think then, Other recommendations got into like wealth management and trusts and those types of things. So one of those books that I've been recommending a lot is Jim Dew's uh, Beyond a Million book. Um, Mm. It's really good because it just kind of explains what wealth managers do and like what you should look for and not look for. And then another book was Strangers in Paradise. Um, This is all after Close because I didn't want to tempt fate, but um, Strangers in Paradise was a good philosophical book about families and wealth and that type of thing. Um, I think prior to Close, it was just a lot of founders though. I think here's a little anecdote. Um, I talked to 30 founders before signing the LOI, um, texted them said, Hey, would you go raise money and keep going? If you had to do it again, they had all sold companies or would you sell? Half of them said I would sell again, like get the bag. It's your first bag, you know, get it right. You know, it'll give you more confidence going into the next one. The other half said they wouldn't, they all had gotten the bag. So take it with a grain of salt. But of that other half, uh, of the 15 seven of them had um just given the keys over and left like here are the keys go and of those seven three of them became drug addicts or alcoholics um, they're all good now but the reason I bring that up is because it doesn't matter if you're running a car wash tech company services business hospice whatever it is your your purpose is wrapped up in what you're doing Like it's very, it's a purposeful job. And we don't because there's a lot of money and capitalism and stuff, we don't always talk about that. But your purpose is wrapped up in what you're doing. And I think that I got really good advice from those seven people because they all regretted just handing over the keys. And they said, I at least should have gone for a year. I should because you need a little bit of a tapering period to like like I'm going through this right now. I call it like the refractory period, because I'm like, okay, am I like who am I? Like my identity has been so wrapped up both with the marketing of the company I was really involved in, but also just like this company, right? Am I capable of doing another thing? Is it, is it like, do I want to do another thing? Do I want to go buy a coffee shop? Do I want to like go do like, it's all this like identity crisis. And I'm going through that while still having a purpose and building this, you know, combined company. And so that was some really good advice that I got that I think is worthwhile for people hearing.
2: Amen. For sure. Tell me you bought yourself a trophy to celebrate this. uh,
0: this (laughs) Not yet. I did. I did buy something and I returned it. Uh, So I'm still. What did you buy? I uh, well, it's a little embarrassing, but uh, it's not embarrassing. I shouldn't be embarrassed. I I ended up buying um, a very expensive coffee grinder. And I, I love coffee, but I don't love coffee to this extent, but it just looked so cool. And it, it was by this like, um, industrial designer that I really like have liked their stuff. You cheap
2: bastard. You took back the coffee, grinder. you sell your company for $200. It was, it, it was $4,500. It, it was,
0: it was four and a half grand. So yeah, I did return it. And the reason, here's the reason I returned it. The reason I returned it is Jenny and I, my better half, we, um, we've always like, I made Like I I really put out there that like finance stuff is important to me to like be purely communicative on. Um, it's like the biggest reason that couples break up is because there's always this weird trust with like finance. So we've had combined bank accounts. We try to have a money mission, and our mission was to like pay off our house really early before the sale and everything. And we always like I, I can't remember the limit exactly, but before this it was like, hey, if you're gonna like don't worry about spending money, but like if you're going to spend over this amount, at least have a conversation about it. Right. So we just had a basic and I went over the limit with this four and a half thousand dollar coffee grant. And she kind of called me out on it. she's like, it's fine. But also like, and I was like, you're right. You're totally right. And so I returned it. But uh, yeah, I I'm still, I'm still thinking about Amazon purchases too much. Um, Yeah. It's, it's, I hear it takes a little while to get used to it, but I'm also really cheap. So I don't know. We'll see. It's all sitting in a savings account too, which is insane. Like don't do that that's a that's a really bad thing to do uh, every wealth ban- I've been interviewing wealth managers this past week and they're all like that is bad please stop doing that and i was like but i don't know what to do with it and they're like that's fine put it in a fidelity account or something just so it's safe you know versus the fdic uh limit so Anyways, well, that's another podcast to, to solve um, that no one should listen to because it's a very privileged, privileged podcast episode. <laughs>
2: Patrick, I can't thank you enough for doing this. Where could people find you if they want to reach out on social? What's the best place?
0: Yeah, so I'm just Paticus, P-A-T-T-I-C-U-S, a childhood nickname on Twitter. Um, I'm also like LinkedIn. I don't really check Patrick Campbell on LinkedIn. I don't really check my LinkedIn messages. So, um, probably easier to find me on Twitter. And I think this type of podcast, I'm, I'm happy to give my email. It's PC at paticus.com. Um, feel free to hit me up. I'm happy to help or give advice. Or if you're like, I'm going through this, it doesn't matter if you're not, if you're a tech business or not, like a lot of these processes are very much the same. So I'm happy to help.
2: Wow. It's a very generous offer. Uh, and we'll put all that in the show notes at built Pat, thanks for doing this.
0: Appreciate it, John.
1: And there you have it. I hope you enjoyed John's conversation today with Patrick Campbell. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, including the documentary, which I mentioned in the interview, along with definitions for some of the more technical terms that were used, visit the episode page, which can be again found over at built to sell.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, then be sure you're subscribed to the podcast if you love This podcast and we would ask that you head over to Apple Podcasts. where there you can leave a rating and review. It truly helps the show grow and get it in front of more people just like you. If you know someone who'd be a great guest right here on built to sell radio, you can actually nominate them. You can head over to built to com slash nominate where there you can nominate either yourself or someone else to be a guest right here on the podcast with John. Special thanks to Dennis Labitaglia for handling the audio engineering and thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisor community are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To find an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan. Talk to you again next week.